I received my very first CDs on Christmas of 1995. I only requested two, the Friends television series and the Waiting to Exhale soundtracks. Both spoke to my musical palette at the time, sufficiently fulfilling my CD starter kit. Some folk, some pop, quirky rock, and a lot of smooth and sultry R&B soul with a dash of youthful expression. The Waiting to Exhale soundtrack very aptly complemented the much-anticipated film based on Terry McMillan's bestseller. And this was a huge step for Black women in cinema. Leela Rashawn, Loretta Devine, Angela Bassett, and Whitney Houston played characters navigating the many trials and triumphs on the road of dating, relationships, and love, setting a template for Black women ensemble cast from Set It Off to Girls Trip. Legend has it, director Forrest Whitaker personally asked Babyface to compose the soundtrack. And then Babyface worked closely with Whitney, deciding together that it should be an all-woman affair. And it's been said that the soundtrack's brilliance is illuminated from the combination of each song dialoguing with each other. Babyface's writing and composition, as well as the dynamicism that each artist brings to their tracks. Only one needs to look to the film itself, or any Angela Bassett meme to see how it reflects each track that digs into the intimacy, pain, joy, and sensualness, and the butterflies that accompany our experiences with friendships, romance, and love. Whitney advised us to exhale, TLC showing them that this is how it works, Mary J. Blige insists she's not gonna cry, Brandy was just sitting up in her room, and when it all comes to pass, Whitney and CC Winans reminds us that we can always count on a friend. There are so many other memorable notes from Tony Braxton, SWV, Faith Evans, Shaka Khan, Shante Moore, Aretha Franklin, and so many others. I played the soundtrack a lot back then, not only excited to have a brand new portable CD player of my own, but even more jazz that my Black women enlightenment phase became blinding, as this remarkable piece of art shined for the world to critically praise. Peanut butter and jelly, macaroni and cheese, chicken and waffles, fish and chips, hamburgers and fries, hot dogs and chili. So many things just go well together, seemingly made for each other. But what about things you wouldn't even imagine, couldn't possibly make sense of together? And then very suddenly you put them together and magic happens. I mean magical moments that you literally need to be alive to witness because it's almost impossible to capture a perfect moment by memory alone. This is just my attempt at a disclaimer because this particular magic moment the music listeners experienced in 1995 can hardly be articulated, but I'll do my best. Let's just start with Mariah Carey. Up until this point, Mariah was consistently riding the top of the pop charts with a string of hits and multi-platinum albums just five years into her career, a gigantic feat within itself. At the time, her husband and label boss, Tommy Mottola, was carefully curating her image and career into pop diva status, often leaning into the adult contemporary spaces and simply flirting with black radio on occasion. But Mariah wanted more. She had a more dynamic vision for her career, a vision that leaned more heavily towards R&B and also hip hop. Sampling Genius of Love, it's wonderfully strange, super catchy post-disco funk track from the Tom Tom Club, and working with producer Dave Jam Hall, the song Fantasy was born. Mariah's poetic lyrics and her gorgeous ethereal vocals made the song a huge, undeniable hit, soaring on the R&B and the pop charts. But as most of you know, this original version is not the definitive version. I'll never forget the day I came home from school and turned on MTV and saw Old Dirty Bastard asking if everyone from New York to Japan was in the house. This was the fantasy remix, produced by Puff Daddy, who has a small cameo on the song itself. It felt unbelievable in that moment. Mariah's image of pristine pop princess and Old Dirty Bastard, who was the live wire of the Staten Island-based hardcore hip-hop group Wu-Tang Clan, known for their intricate, vivid lyricism and dark, gritty sound. ODB was the unhinged, the erratic, the most unpredictable member, who was also extremely beloved. But there was no way one could imagine Mariah and ODB being such a perfect musical collaboration. But it worked. It was exciting on every level. This remix is often credited as being the song that ushered the marriage of R&B and hip hop into the mainstream pop format. ODB's grainy dataism rap style gives us the line, me and Mariah go back like babies with pacifiers, which remains a classic line in the cultural lexicon. 
I love this moment so much. It's a perfect reminder of the wonder that comes with unpredictability and why 90s R&B remains so cherished. The possibilities were endless. I'm writer and professor Ashley Blackwell. I'm screenwriter and music enthusiast Robin Cheney, and this is Rhythm and Schooled. Breaking down 90s R&B one year at a time. Episode 6, 1995, This is How We Do It. What I've absolutely loved so far about working on this podcast has been remembering and observing the evolution of R&B and all the multi-layered movements and subgenres that emerged during this incredibly fruitful decade. In 1995, something happened again. A sound emerged that didn't quite sound like anything on the radio at the time. The sound felt more rooted in 70s soul, but also felt like a spiritual companion to contemporary alternative hip hop. The sound felt both new and old a paradox that invited listeners to look back and forward at the same time. Some were calling it progressive soul, but record label exec Kadar Massenberg coined it neo-soul. During this period, we were reaching a moment where contemporary R&B has started to feel the strain of hyper-curated images and overproduced product. Neo-soul was here to liberate R&B, by injecting it with organic elements, live instrumentation, and an avant-garde approach, meshing classic soul soundscapes with jazz fusion and hip-hop edge. And like any movement in music, it usually starts with an album or a song. Richmond native D'Angelo has been acknowledged with creating the blueprint for the neo-soul era with his exquisite first single, Brown Sugar, and the masterful album of the same name. D'Angelo, a brilliant musician, singer-songwriter, who was heavily influenced by the likes of Prince, Curtis Mayfield, and Marvin Gaye, reimagined the shape of modern R&B by channeling those deeply rooted influences into the hip-hop era. It was a perfect marriage. Despite his rejection of the neo-soul label, the impact was clear. Neo-soul would soon become a major subgenre of contemporary R&B and birth new superstars. Inklings of this neo-soul sound had been happening since the 80s, with the likes of Soul to Soul, Loose Ends, Terrence Trent Darby, who now goes by Sananda Mantira, hopefully I'm saying that right, and others in the early 90s with artists like Tony Tony Tony, Brand New Heavies, Mint Condition, and Jeanne, to name a few. But D'Angelo's arrival seemed to set new wheels of sound into motion. With the single Brown Sugar, a love letter to marijuana, in the vein of funk master Rick James' Mary Jane, Brown Sugar was a deeply textured, soulful groove that felt as haunting as a Marvin Gaye record with the head-nodding appeal of an A Tribe Called Quest joint. The album itself marvels in the glory of the classic soul aesthetic within a hip-hop framework. It's a testament to how Black music constantly and consistently evolves and rebirths itself over and over again. Because to me, Neil's soul has always felt like a resurrection and an awakening. Nineteen ninety five saw ever more endless news stories, entertainment innovations, and the bold reemergence of a quiet former Canadian child star slash pop singer who sent tidal waves into the consciousness of a music consumer culture and industry, a force who led a wave commonly noted as the era of women in rock. But sadly, an ex-Army soldier, emboldened by his anger over the Waco, Texas standoff, Timothy McVeigh, killed 168 people, including 19 children, by bombing a federal building in downtown Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Additional huge news was the first mammal to ever be cloned from an adult cell, Dolly the Sheep, was born on July 5th and lived for seven years. But probably the headline's full eclipse was former football hero turned Naked Gun co-star O.J. Simpson and his trial for the murders of his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend Ron Goldman became known as the trial of the century. An American television sensation, it was watched closely by millions of people, spawning countless commentary from comedians and other pop culture sources such as The Simpsons and Seinfeld. 
And then Jay Leno could be seen cracking on it quite often on The Tonight Show. Now, do you remember where you were during the verdict? I was in middle school, and it was an afternoon, Eastern Standard Time. And when it was scheduled to be announced, no lie, not one teacher could be found anywhere, and the students were left with no supervision whatsoever. Many of us were surprisingly civilized, as we were just as interested in the news as our teachers. School let out early that day. The OJ verdict afternoon was absolutely surreal. Ashamed to say my peers, and internally myself, were happy with the innocent verdict. I think age, maturity, and time helped me reflect on its complicated nature and that this was no occasion to celebrate. With the prevalence of cable and the dawn of the 24-hour news cycle, one could point to the trial setting a tone for our national obsession with reality TV. Released to warm audiences up for the hotly anticipated film, Whitney Houston's opening single on the Waiting to Exhale soundtrack, Exhale, held the record for the longest streak at number two on the Hot 100 for 11 straight weeks. If you had MTV and watched regularly, then it should be no surprise that the Billboard year-end top single of 1995 was Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio featuring LV. But in many corners of the universe, nothing quite shook up our consciousness like the one Alanis Morissette. She released her third studio album, The Maverick Stamped and Approved, Jagged Little Pill, on June 13, 1995. Now, you ought to know quite possibly the mic drop of all breakup songs pierced ears on July 7, 1995, followed by other singles like All I Really Want, Hand in My Pocket, and the smash Ironic, Jagged Little Pill was number one. The album sold over 33 million copies and garnered Alanis an obvious massive amount of attention. Appearing on the Rolling Stone cover in November 1995 next to the questionable copy Angry White Female as Wit for Pay, Alanis helped secure a rock-pop doorstop for deeply personal, unapologetic, full-fledged self-expression in her songs and lyrics. In film, the world witnessed the first-ever completely computer-generated film, Toy Story. It was also the first feature-length film from Pixar. It was one of the biggest films of the year, including Batman Forever, Apollo 13, Disney's Pocahontas, Die Hard with a Vengeance, a personal favorite of mine, mainly for Samuel L. Jackson's always dynamite performance, and Seven. Another breakout film of the year was the surprise hit Clueless, a teen film for the ages released in the summer. The Aerosmith video girl Alicia Silverstone led the now-beloved cast. She became even more of an it girl to watch. I have concrete evidence from teaching a course on teen films that even today's youth are still enamored with this film. The new top TV shows on the block were Friends and the less-discussed Caroline in the City, starring 80s film starlet Leah Thompson. It lasted for four seasons. And speaking of Friends, and this ascent to wide acclaim, my deepest apologies for missing out on mentioning the debut of Fox's living single in 1993, about six Black 20-somethings living in Brooklyn, all with a variety of personal and professional goals that was funny, inspiring, and riddled with chemistry. Now, y'all, Living Single was the successful template for Friends. Oh, it most definitely was. Such a busy year. So much happened. And I remember it all. Especially the OJ verdict, because I was in high school. I remember that each classroom had a TV. And I think I was in my history class as the verdict was announced. It was such a surreal moment with all the mixed reactions that happened after the verdict was announced. The whole day honestly felt really bizarre. On a lighter note, I remember buying Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill and playing it constantly. Such a gigantic moment in music. She had us all in a chokehold, for real. I was becoming like this really huge rock fan in the 90s and just starting my journey of going back to rock music of the past and loving that too. Oh, and Clueless. Clueless is arguably a masterpiece. Love that movie so much. So much of the slang used in the film became very popular among my peers. And I love that this film still resonates with the youth of today. It's very funny and very smart. And shout out to Alicia Silverstone. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, hope you're doing well. She's in movies now. That's right. Oh, More yeah. movies. Yeah. <laughs> love to hear that. And um, yeah, the, the Way to Exhale soundtrack and movie were a huge deal. A film about Black women and their romantic relationships made millions at the box office, and that was significant. And there was a lot of conversation about the film within the Black community regarding images. The soundtrack is one of the greatest ever, in my opinion. 
Babyface's genius is front and center on that soundtrack and all the amazing Black women recording artists he worked with to make that album just as cherished as it is. Oh, and shout out to Shantae Moore's Way You. That song is such a vibe. And I used to play it over and over again. And you couldn't tell me at the age of 15 that I wasn't a 35-year-old divorcee with children <laughs> when Mary J. Blige sang Not Gonna Cry. The top 20 R&B singles of 1995, according to Playback FM. Fantasy by Mariah Carey. This is How We Do It by Montel Jordan. On the amazing podcast, Still Processing, the culture critic Wesley Morris has a really wonderful reflection about how this song is actually a country song and that the line in the song, all the gangbangers forgot about the drive-by is far more significant than is acknowledged. I mean, it was stating that this was such a good time in this song that folks didn't die that day. Like, that's a really interesting observation. Exhale, Shoop Shoop by Whitney Houston. Love this song. Whitney in her R&B bag will always be my favorite Whitney. You Are Not Alone by Michael Jackson. Missing by Everything But The Girl. So shocked to see this on the R&B charts and this high up. I mean, it's a very good song, great remix as well, but I don't consider this R&B. One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men. Nobody Knows by the Tony Rich Project. Talk about where are they now? I would have loved to have heard more from the Tony Rich Project. This song has that country folk babyface-esque vibe to it. Just a completely different sound on contemporary Black radio. Love that it was so embraced, too. One More Chance, Stay With Me by Notorious B.I.G. Love this song. Love this video so much. All those endless cameos. Gangsta's Paradise by Coolio featuring L.V. Bombastic by Shaggy. Don't Take It Personal by Monica. Candy Rain by Soul For Real. I'll Be There For You, You're All I Need by Method Man and Mary J. Blige. A perfect marriage of hip-hop and R&B. Freak Like Me by Adina Howard. The way we weren't supposed to be singing this song. <laughs> Baby by Brandy. If You Love Me by Brownstone. You Remind Me of Something by R. Kelly. On Bended Knee by Boys to Men. Waterfalls by TLC. And Scream by Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson. And real talk, it took me a minute for this song to kind of grow on me when I first heard it, but it did. This is a really dope rock song. Hearing Michael channel his rage was really interesting. Also, just him and Janet collaborating is epic. The video is fantastic, especially the choreography. Yeah, this was a really big moment. So this is how we do it. Could be considered a little corny now. I've heard some really funny jokes that people have made about it. And it, all in good fun, though. Not totally, like, trashing it. To me, honestly, it's still so fun to sing and dance to. I still love listening to it, especially if you have a history with the song. If you were young when the mm -hmm. song came out, you 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 probably like this song. And to <laughs> me, the song is timeless. And sidebar listeners, we considered naming the podcast after the title of this song. <laughs> we really did. <laughs> and Missing by Everything But The Girl, this song feels more EDM to me. Mm -hmm. I do. I did really like this song. But this is just a bizarre <laughs> choice to put on an R&B chart, but fine. I like the song again, but it just feels so out of place. I agree. It, this isn't R&B. It has a soulful vibe to it because of the singer. But other than that, no, <laughs> I don't think so. And One More Chance is just a great combo, right? It's due to the DeBarge sample, and then you have the chorus. And I believe Puff Daddy's vision... Well, one of his visions was to make Biggie a very marketable artist and cast the widest net possible. And I think they succeeded in spades, especially with this single. Scream was a tune that I like instantaneously. I was, again, one of the people 
probably very much like you who saw the video when it first premiered on Fox. Mm -hmm. It has more resonance being older, especially if you like listen to the lyrics and you can truly relate to that level of personal rage. I love how the song is both overtly personal and political. And I love the chemistry between them as siblings and as artists. It's actually the most expensive video ever made. And if you know anything about MJ as a fan, it's no surprise that he spared no expense. The 38th Annual Grammy Awards aired on February 28, 1996 to honor music from the previous year. The nominees for the Best Rhythm and Blues Song of 1995 are You Can't Run by Vanessa Williams, Red Light Special by TLC, Creep by TLC, For Your Love by Stevie Wonder, Brown Sugar by D'Angelo. And the winner is For Your Love by Stevie Wonder. The margin of competition is pretty narrow here with TLC and D'Angelo. I think For Your Love is a fine song, but maybe not the strongest from Stevie. I can't even say maybe, it definitely is not. And it's also very difficult to say that he shouldn't have won against his other peers. But I do sense a resistance to the tide change in regards to what D'Angelo was putting out and TLC's work on their second album and what it symbolized. And this is where, in retrospect, as consumers, we can give awards a little too much merit because there's heavy politics involved in it. I feel like I've learned. The best output of work for a cultural climate doesn't always win, you can say. Now, this Vanessa Williams song slid a bit under the radar, but I remember hearing it once or twice during this period. It's really because that chorus is a clear giveaway that it was produced by Babyface. Right? Babyface's pen was consistently on fire in the 90s. This is a truly underrated Vanessa Williams jam. And I agree with your assessment, Ashley. There definitely seemed to be some resistance to perhaps awarding newer R&B acts of the time in keeping with tradition. Always love me some Stevie, but I do think D'Angelo's Brown Sugar should have won. It was a song definitely pushing the genre forward in this decade. And honestly, it's just a really, really, really dope song. And I wouldn't even be mad at TLC winning for Creep or Red Light Special. I mean, those are really big singles for them. And like I said, some of their best work. This award belonged to D'Angelo, I agree. Maybe it's the recreational drug use text, I don't know. <laughs> Doing the impossible, this is where we choose just a few of our favorite tracks from the year. The first track I chose is Can't You See by Total, featuring Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. The Notorious B.I.G. Give me all the chicken heads from Pasadena to Medina. Man, that Notorious B.I.G. rhyme over that James Brown sample was a moment. I don't know, but this song feels like a cultural reset. Maybe because it is a flawless example of hip-hop soul and one of the most exquisite products of that musical marriage, Bad Boy Records and its founder, producer Puff Daddy, were on fire. Endless hit records with these signature classic soul and funk samples. The girl group Total had a major hit right out of the gate with Can't You See. They were distinct in their image and sound, enough to stand apart from the sea of girl groups in this era, which is really impressive. It didn't sound like any other of their contemporaries. This video had it been all black with shades and it had like this futuristic feel to it. And in terms of vibe, I mean, they lean towards TLC, which feels to be an obvious influence, but their sound, totally their own, pun intended. I love how lush their harmonies are on this track, just smooth as hell. They just had their own unique flavor. And back to Biggie's opening verse. When the endless debates for greatest rappers of all time comes up, you could just play this verse by him. It, to me, is a prime example of Biggie's humor, cleverness, skill, and genius as an MC. There are just so many quotable lines here. Truly one of the best rap features on an R&B track of all time, period. Agreed. And Total were like 
this splice blend of everything you've seen lately from girl groups during this era, yet something completely original. You could say that Puff was always looking for a more original angle to market the artist under his label. And Pam's voice was distinct. And the song, the video is the door opening for the shiny suit era of hip hop R&B, as it's sometimes described. Oh, yes, the, the shiny suit era and its inevitable backlash was quite a time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> All right, for my next song, Vibin, the new flavor remix by Boys to Men featuring Tretch, Craig Mack, Buster Rhymes, and Method Man. Street cred was becoming a really big deal in R&B at this time. With the rise of hip hop, the image making street cred was driving the market and Black listeners' perceptions. At this point, Boys to Men were pretty much the biggest selling male R&B group of the 90s. Their music dominated the R&B and the pop charts. And this kind of mammoth success could be a double-edged sword for Black artists. The idea of becoming too pop was considered as though you were abandoning Black audiences or you were selling out. And this is an old idea, too. I mean, we've been having this conversation about Black artists for years. Boys to Men were initially marketed as the preppy boys next door in the vein of Carlton Banks. And many of their hits tended to be MOR or middle of the road in terms of their mainstream pop formats embrace of them and their appeal. The Vibin New Flavor remix felt like it was a moment where Boys to Men wanted music fans to know they were hip hop heads and were not selling out. By finding some of the best rappers in the game to take center stage on this song was a very strategic move. But it worked for me because I really dig the song and the rappers and their verses. The original vibin' is just as dope, but this remix is a reminder of how influential hip hop was becoming and how much it influenced other genres and artists. Basically, great analysis. I agree. I really like the original, which doesn't read as pop at all to me, but kind of that cool breeze R&B. Marketing and image played a huge role in the perceptions of boys to men and their success. Yes, 1000%. I'm sure I never heard this song before until the podcast, and I'm pretty sure it was because I was so sick of them at this point in 1995. <laughs> they were everywhere, and I was lukewarm on boys to men, as mentioned before in a few episodes back. But it is truly hard to ignore the great music they put out, and this single is an example of that. And adding to your thesis, how about their chorus appearance on Hey Lover by LL Cool J. I love that song. And it was yet another song we were too young to be listening to, but I absolutely loved it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Hey Lover with LL Cool J was a really good look for them. And it also happened in 1995. So this feels like a very intentional moment where boys to men were working with hip hop artists and trying to appeal to that particular audience. Yep. Next, Tell Me by Groove Theory. Very excited to talk about this song. Kind of going back to what I said about Can't You See with Total and Biggie, Tell Me feels like another one of those perfectly executed R&B songs that everyone and their mama loved for the moment it first arrived on the airwaves. Every head was nodding to that beat. I think it's that collective familiarity. Producers quickly realized that those classic soul and funk samples could sometimes create an instant hit because listeners could feel the familiarity even if they didn't initially know why. So Tell Me samples the bass line from Kenny Burke's Rising to the Top, which the Mary Jane Girls sampled for All Night Long. Then we have the dreamy vocals from Amel LaRue. I truly love her voice on this. I also love the lyrics. That first line, I've been doing my own thing, love has always had a way of having bad timing, hits a nerve for me. I need it on a t-shirt. The defining line of my entire romantic life, sadly, but that's what makes it so relatable. There's a beautiful simplicity to this song that I think also captured listeners when it dropped. There's nothing that feels overproduced here either. Everything feels really parred down to its essence. Amel and producer Bryce Wilson are the members of Groove Theory. And although this song puts them in the one hit wonder category, real heads know the debut album is an underrated gem, a classic. So many solid joints on that album. Amel LaRue would go on to have a really solid solo career, but she's still so underrated. Also, shout out to Trey Lorenz, who appears towards the end of the song. His voice blends so beautifully with the males. He is also the male vocalist complimenting Mariah Carey on her gorgeous cover of the Jackson 5's I'll Be There. 
I think Tell Me is truly an essential R&B song of the 90s. Everything, Groove Theory, is incredibly underrated. Bryce, Emil, the album itself. Now, my favorite track is 10 Minute High, so while Tell Me is not my favorite, I really do like it and appreciate it. And I cannot say enough about Amel, but I do understand she comes more into the conversations of the next century when it comes to music, especially neo-soul. Her albums have been life-changing for me, and the lyrics in her work points directly to her uncompromising spirit, which is why I love her so much. It's why... She absolutely has not been a bigger artist in any arena, but I absolutely love her. I will sing her praises till my last breath. No, she's fantastic. So for my next selection, I chose Who Can I Run To by Escape. I am so excited to give some love to my favorite Escape song. I first fell in love with the original Who Can I Run To by the Jones Girls, one of the most soulful girl groups of all time, who are firmly some of Philly Soul's finest. They released Who Can I Run To in 1979. But when Escape remade this song in 1995, it added a contemporary spin on it. And to me, it's just a gorgeous moment for them as a group. Covers are hard, and making a cover your own is no small feat. I love that Escape member Tamika Scott co-leads this with her sister Latasha. On this, Tamika had a perfect showcase for her beautiful voice. She gives the song the emotional dynamics it deserves. Along with Latasha, who delivers consistently, but here she feels more powerful and vulnerable than usual, which really works. The lyrics are heartbreaking, probably why I relate to them so much. The song is about being in search of true love. Who will be there for you when you really need them? Who is going to provide you the loyalty that you need? Escape is at their full powers on this one. I also love the video where the ladies are singing in a slick nightclub. They all looked gorgeous. I love how many 90s R&B artists were courageous enough to attempt covering beloved classics. And also so many of their covers feel like they were truly honoring the music of the past, the artists they grew up on. That's a huge part of what feels like is missing today. Truly honoring the lineage in a way that feels sincere and thoughtful. There's really nothing for me to say here. You nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, my song, girl. My final selection, Heaven by Solo. And speaking of honoring the lineage of R&B, the male group Solo did just that with Heaven. What immediately is distinct about them right off the bat is how much they sound like 60s soul singers, namely Wilson Pickett and perhaps a touch of Sam Cooke. Solo was making Retro Soul before Retro Soul even had a name. The song feels like it could almost be from the 60s, save for the slick production of the 90s. The lyrics, the melody, the content itself about being truly in love with someone, that they make you feel like you have heaven on earth. I remember my father first hearing this song and saying to me, now who is this sounding like Wilson Pickett? The song definitely struck a chord with baby boomers and those young listeners like myself who grew up at their parents' record players. I love the song instantly because of the old classic soul feeling of it. This wasn't neo-soul. This was retro. This was a song paying homage only, looking back specifically and intentionally. Even in the music video, before Heaven even plays, the group members are standing on a corner singing a doo-wop acapella version of Sam Cooke's Cupid. They were definitely marketed towards the mature, older music listener. But yeah, as a teen, I truly loved the song Heaven, and I'm so happy it wasn't completely lost in the sea of male R&B groups. Listening to it today, it still feels like a really, really wonderful moment. Great choices. Now, my figurative 1995 Desert Island picks for singles are as follows. We Got It by Immature. Sampling Chocolate Milk's Girl Callin' from 1977, which gave the album title track its own funky flavor with a hip-hop bounce and bars from the acclaimed female Mac, Smooth. We Got It was the next phase in Immature's growth as both young dudes and artists. Playtime was certainly over with Batman's deeper octave and daydreaming about his boo. We Got It is just a fun dance jam. But I want to talk a little bit more about rapper Smooth for a second. Real name Juanita Stokes, MC Smooth was a West Coast performer and the sister of Immature's producer Chris Stokes. 
She got her first record deal at 17 and made it on the rap charts during the heyday of salt and Peppa, MC Light, and Queen Latifah, but never quite reaching their status of visibility. She eventually dropped the MC title to Just Smooth, also appearing on the soundtrack for Menace to Society with the track You've Been Played, which was also the name of her second album in 1993. She worked with the likes of Shock G and Tupac, and her videos appeared regularly on Yo! MCV Raps and BET's hip-hop programming. Now, she's known as Nita S., an indie artist and mother who's still out here making moves and being her fabulous self. What made her such a standout was her pre-Little Kim and Foxy Brown approach to her natural public expression of her own sexuality and image and rhymes, as well as the combo of R&B stylings and rapping on her tracks. Go back and listen to tracks like Strawberries, which is my favorite, or Let's Not Pimp on Spotify and discover one of hip-hop's buried treasures. This is such a fun song. Another banger for Immature. And I love that you mentioned Smooth. First song I heard by her was You've Been Played on the Menace Society soundtrack. She had such a different and distinct sound. So I'm so glad you mentioned her. Yeah, right on. My next choice, I picked Runaway by Janet Jackson. I remember snatching Design of a Decade, 1986-1996, which was Janet's Greatest Hits compilation, in a heartbeat after I heard Runaway compliment a romantic montage on my soap, General Hospital. It's the kind of song that transports you to warm destinations and assists you leave all your worries in a tomb. And then I embarrassingly sang the song in my room with my eyes closed doing just that when I was a kid. Runaway is the song responsible for making Janet the first woman artist to debut within the top 10 of Billboard's Hot 100 chart. Another fun fact, the song was first conceptualized by Janet and longtime collaborators and co-writers and producers on this joint, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, to be a duet with Michael Jackson. They elected for that track to be Scream instead. Wow. Didn't know about this being a possible duet with Michael. Very, very interesting. Another R&B pop classic by Janet, for real. Like, it's such a breezy little jam that feels made for laid back weekends and spontaneous getaways. Oh, I love this song. Mm -hmm. Next, I picked Sentimental by Deborah Cox. Canada's own is simply the spoil for us music fans. She was all powerhouse vocals and undeniable talent with one notable beginning. She was a background singer for Celine Dion. Sentimental just gets down to Deborah admitting that she let a good thing walk away and in that now that you're gone fashion, she's feeling the feels when she thinks about them. And the hymn in the music video was Omar Epps who had all the New York 90s male swag appeal that was just oozing <laughs> on that screen. Also, this production was by the ever-present Dallas Austin. Man, the way Dallas Austin deserves so much more recognition, he feels sorely overlooked when we talk about producers, especially in the 90s. And yeah, this is such a solid jam. Definitely one of my favorite Deborah Cox songs, for sure. Now, another song that's a little bit harder to find is We Must Be In Love by Pure Soul. It's certainly no surprise to anyone familiar with this moderate hit on R&B radio to hear that this song was the wedding song of the decade. It's in the lyrics. It's in the gospel-esque overtones. It's certainly in the music video visuals, like an actual wedding ceremony taking place in a church. Quartet Sean Allen, Kristen Hall, Keitha Shepard, and Heather Perkins only created one self-titled album together with Interscope. Their three singles, including We Must Be In Love, did crack the top 40 on Billboard's R&B list. They were one of those obscure acts that deserves a mention for this song that has such a powerful essence. Girl, the way I want to fight Spotify because this <laughs> song isn't streaming. Ugh. This is an incredibly beautiful song. So glad you selected it. I love a good wedding song, especially when it sounds as sincere and authentic as this. Also, their voices were just like really amazing. And you know, just joking, but I wonder if Invogue got a little nervous for like two seconds when they heard this. <laughs> <laughs> two seconds, probably. So my last pick here is Joy by Blackstreet. I think for me, the sweetest discovery of this song was finding out that it is about the way a father feels about his daughter. I love the line, 
she's erased all the sadness away. It reminds me of when Madonna, just a few years later, would sing with all her intensity on her track, Little Star, that her firstborn breathed new life into her broken heart. That line almost makes me want to cry every time I hear it. A modest, well-received hit with Levi Little taking lead here. I don't have much else to say about this song, except that it's just, I just love it a lot. It's so great. It's, it's just, it sounds sweet. It was written by Tammy Lucas, Teddy Riley, and Michael Jackson. Whew, what a song is just so amazing. I barely have words. Levi Little's vocals were perfect for this. And I really, really love Blackstreet. And this just might, might be my favorite Blackstreet song. Oh, it's definitely mine for sure. I can still hear joy in my head. Even when someone mentions the song, I just start hearing it. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a thing with that song. I love it. Like, yeah, like I like Blackstreet's other work, but joy stands out it to really me. It really does. So. And I also think giving it to someone who doesn't sing regularly lead does something else mm-hmm. to the song. Like it could have easily just been Chauncey singing. Or yeah. Dave Hollister, which I which would have done justice, but him specifically is doing something to that song that I don't think they could have done. School is in session. So with our legacy segment, We just want to have longer discussions regarding artists, careers, albums, moments, and movements in the 90s, trying to add nuance and to contextualize music history for y'all. Because this music history is massive and we can't dismiss it. Let's embrace it and all the complexities that come with it. In a time where critical thinking is often quickly flattened by the extremes of love and hate, I must say that it is okay to criticize what you love. Honestly, it's crucial that you deepen your thinking about the things that you love. With that being said, this is not an analysis based on prudishness or anything of the like. All the music and artists I will be discussing are songs and artists I adore and have grown up adoring. This observation hinges on the evolution of R&B, and since this podcast is committed to taking a deeper look, I felt this was the perfect place to wrestle with complicated ideas. The first time I even thought about the adultification of R&B came from a Twitter thread. Sorry to the posters involved, but I can't find the actual thread for reference because this was years ago and Twitter ain't what it used to be. The topic was about favorite cover songs. Someone replied by posting the Jackson 5's Who's Loving You? Where an 11-year-old Michael Jackson sang with passionate conviction a tale of love and heartbreak. If you know this song or watch the performance, which can be found on YouTube, you will have goosebumps. Michael sang this song better than Smokey Robinson, who wrote the song, and even agrees that young Michael's cover is definitive. The original Twitter poster replied back that although Michael sounded great, he was concerned about a boy his age being able to sing something so emotionally mature. I was blown away by this response because it was something I never, ever considered. I mean, aside from sheer talent, should a child even be able to convey that kind of emotional maturity? And is that a good thing? I've thought about this for a really long time. R&B has always been grown folks music in terms of content which primarily concerns the vast complex emotional themes of love, sex, obsessive desire, adultery, heartbreak, and pain. And at one point marketed primarily to grown black folks. So what happens when recording artists under 18 are signed to labels to make R&B music? Overall, the Jackson 5 were singing cutesy R&B songs that were occasionally emotionally mature. Barry Gordy was trying to market their sound to kids and to adults. In the 1980s, New Edition sound was inspired by the Jackson 5 and seemed age-appropriate with songs like Candy Girl, Popcorn Love, and Mr. Telephone Man, to name a few. Even The Boys scored a big hit in the 80s with the age-appropriate Dial My Heart. To me, the essence of a bubblegum R&B pop hit. I remember an unsung episode about the Jets, who in the 1980s had a hit R&B pop ballad called You've Got It All, which was sung by then 12-year-old Elizabeth Wolfgram, 
who has stated that she didn't even understand the romantic lyrics of the song because she was so young. If you've heard this song, you know it's shocking to realize she was 12 because the vocals are just so mature. But by the 90s, R&B saw a huge upswing in teen music sensations. In our last episode alone, we discussed Brandy, Immature, Aaliyah, and Soul For Real. So what happens when a young recording artist naturally has a wiser than their years voice? For example, Monica, who blazed on the music scene with her debut album, Miss Thang. The title itself, a black colloquial term often used to identify girls who are acting older than their age. Monica is an incredible vocalist, and it was hard to believe she was 14 when she recorded many of the songs on the album. Like 15-year-old Tracy Spencer before her, who had a quiet storm ballad with tender kisses, sounding far more mature as well, Monica's vocal maturity is what set her apart from other teen acts of the time. Even in image and marketing with music videos, Monica appeared very grown up. We're the same age, but at 15, I felt like when I saw her in music videos, she was much older than me. Also thinking about Teenage Usher, when the label wanted him to get some more swagger, they sent him to New York to hang with Puff Daddy. As stated before, the desire to give artists street cred was significant to image making as hip hop was beginning to dominate the charts in a massive way. The first single from the Devante Swing produced, Can You Get With It, has young Usher singing that is only, quote unquote, a sexual thing. I often think about the single, This Little Game We Play by Subway and 702. Two teen R&B groups at the time. The song was a hit in 1995 and me and all my friends knew every single word. The song's content has to do with the teasing seduction or fun and games of sexual prowess. This would be Subway's only hit and 702 would go on to have a much more impactful career. The song and video feel like a quintessential example of adultification in R&B. When Tevin Campbell sang Shh, Break It Down, written by Prince, he was still in high school. The song about a sexual escapade with lyrics like, quote unquote, I'd like to do you after school like some homework, were at complete odds with the boy next door image Tevin Campbell had cultivated. And Tevin himself admitted to being uncomfortable with some of the lyrical content. He apparently needed to be totally alone in the studio to even sing it. Even the third single from Soul For Real has a teenage Jace singing, quote unquote, if you want it, you can have it, come and get it. Something I remember giving my mom pause when she first heard it on the radio. Not all teen artists in the 90s were given mature sexual content or wise beyond their years images. Early Brandy was marketed as far more wholesome and just as successful. As I said before, this is just a brief analysis. It's obvious with teen music acts, labels were desperate to appeal to kids and adults, but at what cost? This is something that's been on my mind for a while. I find it to be an interesting observation and conversation when we look back on our love for this music and wrestle with it in a more nuanced way. I honestly would love to see more analysis around this subject matter. And like I said at the top, I love these songs and artists, but I think it's important to have these nuanced conversations when we reflect. Thank you for bringing this topic to the forefront here. One of my favorite podcasts is Black on Black Cinema. Shout out to those brothers and sister. One of the co-hosts has two sons, and in referencing his oldest once, he has made it abundantly clear that he is not a little man or any term of endearment or otherwise. He's a boy. He makes that fervently clear. Not to get too off topic here, but I've personally and culturally experienced this sense of urgency to grow up quickly because I think for many of our parents, we were not stepping into a world that was going to be kind to us, much less fair. So if we soldier up in a sense early, we'd be better armed for the blows later. And I think that trickles a little bit in the music business for a lot of these younger artists. So for me, I had a bit of more of a balance when it came to being a kid, but also having to grapple with grown folks business in a way I was forced to and just in the way I was just exposed to. It's this kind of odd, messy discourse that we have about these kind of situations, because what are the proper healthy boundaries for children 
and adults. So the little voice inside of me sometimes nudged at my curiosity of seeing teenage entertainers present widely beyond their years, even with all that experience that I had on my own. So one of the first people I think of is Foxy Brown. And she was the first entertainer I remember. I had my jaw on the floor when I found out how old she was when Il Nana was released. Now, it's an album that still goes hard, but I don't feel good about Foxy's age attached to that image and the lyrics. Like when I found out mm-hmm. she was, I believe, 16, I was, that was just like, okay, this is a little too far. When you first mentioned that Tracy Spencer was a teenager when Tender Kisses came out, that was another thing where I was just kind of shocked. You remember the inflection in my voice. (laughs) And I would have never guessed she was so young. I'm thinking she's, when I remember first hearing that song when I was a kid and seeing the video, I'm just like, okay, she's in her early 20s. Like I would have never have thought she was younger than that. And Monica's another huge standout for me. It's the same. I think Miss Thang, the title alone had my spidey senses tingling. And when the album first came out, I bought it because I really, I liked all of those singles. I liked the album itself. But man, did I spend time in my bedroom gawking at that cover and the inside cover of the CD because there's this affect about Monica's image that told me she presented as much older than she was. So I'm like, okay, I get that she's a little bit older than me, but I'm just like, why y'all telling me she's this age, but I'm not seeing (laughs) (laughs) that that youth reflected back there's something a little bit more like elevated in like that image of kind of like this mature person but this person is actually this particular age Mm -hmm. and again it's it just goes back to this idea like i love these songs i love this output of music but it was a bit much for me a little bit and Monica had that swag she had that maturity to her that i could not even fathom at 14. (laughs) But let's shift to a slightly different age bracket here. Still youthful, but years ahead of the previously mentioned, a singer-songwriter in her early 20s planted a very firm flag on the full-grown R&B that was just on time in her personal and professional life in 1995. Who was this new mezzo-soprano? Faith Evans just fascinated me. She was the new soulful vocalist on the block. Even the cover photo for her debut album that I bought with my allowance money in 95 is raw. It's all face. Her very light skin somehow magnifying the bright white background she nearly completely covers and her first name highlighted in golden lettering. Both her name and something the artist firmly stands by. I opened this CD case so much the hinges cracked off long ago. Just before she made an album so good you'll wear out the case, Faith was a session singer and arranger working for and with Albie Shore when she was around 20. He gave her a business-friendly title, The Doctor, because of her skills with melody and vocal enhancement. Faith had the gift to make songs better. And then one fateful day, she was only there to give a lift to her child's father and his business acquaintances, who were hired to produce some songs for a then-teenaged usher by former Uptown Records employee Sean Puff Daddy Combs. But they needed a woman to sing on a track to impress the ornery puff. And Faith delivered. Through the nervousness and intimidation, her lightning-fast adaptation to what he wanted, she rendered Puff Daddy, of all people, speechless. Just minutes later, he let Faith know that he was starting Bad Boy Records and that he wanted to sign her. She was shocked and very interested. Puff, like many moguls, had a vision. Faith was to be Bad Boy's first lady, his, quote, mature balladeer for the grown and sexy folks, end quote. In the fall of 1994, Faith began working on the album which hit record store shelves in August of 95. It's pure R&B soul with mid-tempo bounce and rainy melody all throughout. This album from beginning to end is worship, bedroom speak, and a night at a smoky jazz club. Faith told us, quote, every single fight and argument I had with Big and every single makeup love making session seeped into my songwriting for my debut album, end quote, which is clear from the project's consistent themes. And yeah, she's talking about that Big, the notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, her bad boy label mate and husband. They married eight days after meeting. They were young and pretty spontaneous. And basically, their marital ups and downs fueled her pen on just about every song on the album. Like, soon as I get home, it was Faith writing what she wished Biggie would say to her. 
complementing this with Come Over, where I get the feeling Faith is speaking directly to him. These two tracks are in dialogue with each other about their respective workloads, tour scheduling, and everything else that kept them apart during this period. You Used to Love Me, the album's first single, hit the target for Puff Daddy's vision. Everyone loved it, and the head-nodding beat and Faith's smoky tone, she knew that this song would cast a wide net. A multi-generational ear catcher, and very much about what Faith wants for her marriage, not what she was then fully receiving. To balance all this with good emotions and times the two did have, Give It To Me, No Other Love, which has a fantastic sample of Isaac Hayes' Walk On By, written by Burke Bacharach and Hal David, Ain't Nobody, Fallin' In Love, You Gotta Love the Patrice Russian sample here, and the powerhouse finale track, Reasons, makes Faith's debut a journey. Her collaborative efforts with the late great Chucky Thompson, Mary J. Blige, Herb Middleton, Jean-Claude Olivier, and of course Puff himself made the album a critical and commercial hit. You Used to Love Me and Soon As I Get Home went on to gold status and the album is certified platinum. It's an album still talked about with reverence today. A critic or two will tell you, look no further than this 1995 piece to hear brilliance and a little bit of tea. Now I know we may use the word vulnerable quite a bit, but the best of what this decade had to offer does this in the most effective and massively impactful ways, because Faith is inviting you into her pain and her love for big, for her daughter China, for the Lord even. It's so palpable and inviting. One of my favorite things about working on this podcast is getting to discuss our faves and giving them their much-deserved flowers. I know Faith has millions of adoring fans, but I don't know if even now she gets the recognition she deserves for being the brilliant artist that she is. Even during the 90s and early 2000s, I don't think she was really given her due. And it's nobody's fault. It's one of those things that's been happening since the beginning of music. You know, when someone comes out and kind of changes up the game, almost everyone who comes out at the same time or after might be overshadowed in some ways. I used to say that Faith is the Gladys Knight to Mary J. Blige's Aretha Franklin, both legendary artists who gave us some of the best soul music has to offer, but Aretha will always loom larger in history. Faith and Mary are often compared, even when they really shouldn't have been. And that's also a part of how we process musicians when they share some familiar thematic musical DNA. Faith is truly her own artist, and the real comparison with Mary is the hip-hop soul edge in Faith's music, and of course the vulnerability. But I gotta say, in the same way you've kind of referenced here, Faith's approach to vulnerability feels a little different than Mary's. But listening to this album again, Faith has her own unique signature on these songs. There's almost this gospel-like spiritual interiority here that feels very distinct from other female artists of the time. Also, there's a tremendous amount of untethered sensuality in her music. That spiritual and then that deeply sensuous blend of soul feels overpowering and even boundless here. This is an album that invites you to get completely lost in it. And if I start naming tracks, we might be here all day. <laughs> but Fallen in Love stayed on repeat when I was 15. And to this day, it's still one of my favorite songs by her. Like the Brownstone single, I heard it through the grapevine are just some of the insightful tidbits we came across while doing our research or from distant recollections passed down that we wanted to mention. So, Robin, what you done heard through the grapevine? So, I done heard that Joy by Blackstreet was initially written to be a song for Michael Jackson, and it was supposed to be on the Dangerous album, I think. I could totally see Michael singing this, and I'm sure it would have been just as exquisite. I mean... Michael could really work a slow jam or a ballad. Oh, totally agree. And this song is attached to the fruitful working relationship Teddy Riley had with Michael at the time. MJ not only co-wrote, but he also did the demo. And yup, it didn't make the cut for Dangerous, but MJ did sing background on the final cut uncredited. Also, what I found out is the Rose Royce cover of Love Don't Live Here Anymore 
that Faith Evans sung on her first album, that was all Puff's idea. He also decided that this would be a duet with Mary J. Blige, but the song itself, Faith wasn't really impressed with. And listening to it when it was first released, it really shows. The original Rolls Royce version of this is my favorite version. I do think the song kind of sticks out on Faith's album in a way I can't quite articulate. And yeah, I really totally forgot that Faith wasn't really feeling it initially. But hey, it's still a really good cover. She can sing and she can deliver and she's a professional. That's why I love her so much. (laughs) So this was our look back on 1995. Please visit rhythmandschooledpodcast.com for our archive of shows, notes, and references for your own independent schooling. And get to know us. We fly. Our email is the411 at rhythmandschooledpodcast.com if you have feedback and want to speak out on your favorite R&B artists of the 90s. We'll be sure to read and share it on the show in the future. Also, please follow the podcast on Instagram at rhythm underscore and underscore schooled. And be sure to listen to the podcast on Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, and now on YouTube at Rhythm School Podcast. And to hear curated mixtapes for each episode, find them exclusively on Spotify. Until next time. Peace.